This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think of the two imaging modalities as complementary to each other. And um, I think of EVIS as a modality that's going to help me guide my catheters and wires, uh, especially in chronic total occlusions. I think of EVIS as a modality that increased my safety in terms of obtaining access and in terms of securing that when I finish the case and uh, use a closure device or even manual pressure, uh, I'm using EVIS to look at possible complications that I'm worried about during the, the procedure. All of those things cannot be achieved by IBIS. But fast forward to, yes, you cross the lesion uh, and you, you traverse this complicated anatomy, even if it was not a chronic total occlusion, even if it's just a patent vessel. Now, the role of IBIS is very important. What IBIS was able to do is allow us to look at, uh, in a more granular way, the composition of the plaque that we're treating. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy, a resource aimed at improving patient outcomes with awareness, education, and optimized solutions through diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. Their goal is to support healthcare professionals through the clinical pathway which takes their interest in Philips' best-in-class technology and translates it to applicable skills for appropriate clinical applications. They continue to deliver strategic, valuable educational programs that meet the evolving needs of their customers. Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy will give you access to upcoming live courses led by leaders in the field, self-paced distance learnings, on-demand case reviews, personalized peer-to-peer training, and comprehensive educational opportunities. From basic to advanced educational opportunities, they are dedicated to helping you achieve long-term success as well as competence and confidence with the Philips Peripheral Device Portfolio. They look forward to working with you on your developmental journey. If you have any questions, please contact them at philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Again, that's philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. I have two guests today, Jill Somerset, Director of Ultrasound at Advanced Vascular Center in Portland, Oregon, and Hope Clinical Innovation Center in Houston, Texas. She's also the chair of the SVU Annual Conference and serves on the board of directors for SVU. Jill, thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Behetti, and thank you, Backtable, for the invitation to be here today. My second guest is Dr. Fadi Saab, Interventional Cardiologist and Director of Advanced Cardiac and Vascular Amputation Prevention Centers and Associate Professor at Michigan State University. Dr. Saab, thank you for being here. Thank you for the kind invitation. Happy to be here. Our topic today is EVIS to IVIS, a continuous spectrum. Let's start with some basic questions for the uninitiated. Dr. Saab, I'm going to let you take this one. What is IVIS and what is EVIS? Yeah, sure. When we uh, start thinking about ultrasound uh, technology, it is the ability to visualize three-dimensional structures in a way that's different than fluoroscopy and radiation. And to that concept, we currently are lucky to have what I think is two major categories, extravascular ultrasound, which is EVIS, and intravascular ultrasound, which is IVIS. 
And the way I think of EVAS is uh, basically us shining a light and visualizing things from the outside toward the inside. So in very simple terms, from outside the body to inside the body, uh, especially when it comes to vascular ultrasound, visualizing vasculature from uh, the, the skin deeper into the tissue. And the way that I tend to think of intravascular ultrasound is visualizing the structures from the inside to the outside. So in the case of veins or arteries, visualizing these arterial amina structures from the inside of these structures to the outside of a body in a nutshell. Okay. Anything to add to that, Jill? Yeah, I think the the beauty of, of ultrasound too, extravascular ultrasound, is we get hemodynamics. So we get a live feedback of the hemodynamics in the vasculature, which is really nice to have that additional information. For sure. I had the pleasure of recently visiting Jill's center um, and seeing what a wizard she is with extravascular ultrasound. It's not even just like looking at the right places. It's all the dynamic gymnastic movements you make during the procedure to to get the correct pictures, which... Uh, that really got me. But I'd like to just dive in and talk a little bit about case selection for extravascular ultrasound. Jill, with the physicians you work with, do you use this for every case? Uh, not every case. And thank you, Dr. Behetti. It was really nice to have you in the lab. But um, before we answer your question, I just wanted to share a short story, Dr. Sub. You probably don't remember me, but you know, back in 2014, I joined the CSI course. And um, I have to give you and Dr. Mustafa so much credit because you opened up the world to to an ultrasound tech being in the cath lab. And that's when Lindsay worked with you. And I thought, oh my gosh, I <laughs> I want to do that. So I just want to say thank you for opening up the world for vascular techs to have a role and a place in the cath lab because it is so valuable and I, I love it so much. And I think um, to answer your question about case selection, Dr. Behetti, is that, you know, I scan all of these arterial patients and I'm constantly in my mind thinking, are they a candidate for EVIS? Sure. Um, and some of them, it's it's no, like it's a huge rock pile in the distal SFA. And I know that ultrasound is going to be limiting. And oftentimes I'll be like, yes, this is a great EVIS case. Let's book it on a day when I'm going to be there. And you can almost tell. And, you know, Dr. Constantine will bring me in anyway, just, you know, we can try different angles, but you oftentimes know the cases that are going to be limited by EVIS. And then we have to rely obviously on our other tools, IVIS and fluoroscopy. Dr. Saab, do your techs do all of the duplex ultrasound or do you have a separate group? Because I know your techs are more interventional ultrasonographers, which is really amazing. Uh, I'm just curious how it works in your facility. You know, Jill, you're very, you're very kind. You're very humble. You've done a lot to the field, and you've you've done a lot uh, to your peers and to your colleagues, and quite frankly, to a lot of us uh, endovascular specialists that uh, work in this field. And I may venture to say, and I th I don't think it's an exaggeration. I use the term interventional radiologist, interventional ultrasonographer, quite a bit, and I introduce a lot of our ultrasonographers as interventional ultrasonographers. And th that really pours into the question you just posed, because I know without you even tell me, you and I did not compare notes. The way you scan the patients in the ultrasound suite or the ultrasound lab, even if they're not having a procedure, as an interventional ultrasonographer, and I think you are one of those interventional ultrasonographers, the way you scan those patients is very different. And I'm, I don't mean it in a way that diminishes the role of the regular uh, ultrasonographers. It's just your view, your thought process is quite different than ultrasonographers that are not in the interventional suite because you've already evolved from that, okay, my role here is to provide imaging, hemodynamic assessment, 
and images of the structures that we need to treat. And you've already evolved into the next stage where, all right, now I need to think about the concept of revascularization and tackling the types of lesions and the types of vessels that I'm looking at under ultrasound and provide within my capacity feedback to my the physician that I'm working with and explain to them, you know, what am I looking at? And you made a nice example. You said, this is a, not a good case for EVAS, but we're actually saying this is a highly complex lesion that's going to be challenging no matter what the physician is going to do. You already provided valuable information to the physician beyond fluoroscopy. And I think that's what we're witnessing. This is, to me, what's so exciting about the extravascular ultrasound with people like Jill and a lot of our ultrasonographers. They're really paving the way for what I think is a new specialty in the field that's going to translate into better success rate, better outcomes, and lower complications. So, Dr. Saab, do you set up all your cases with EVIS, or do you rely on the input from your interventional sonographer as well? So we made a conscious decision on our lab that we always have an interventional ultrasonographer as a member of a team. So we don't book them on and off. Number one, because the majority of our patients are critical limb ischemia patients. This is kind of the most advanced form of PAD. But number two, you know, we feel that, um, and I think Jill will talk about that also some more, we feel that it, beyond actually extending our ability to deliver care, it's an extra level of safety uh, for the patients. So it's not only obtaining access. I think uh, ultrasonography or extravascular ultrasound is more sensitive in picking up complications, is more sensitive in, uh, in documenting success or failure of an intervention. So when the patient leaves our lab, leaves the cath lab suite, We've already, you know, had our check mark checked, and we're 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 not concerned about certain types of common complications that can happen to anybody. So to answer your question, we always have an interventional ultrasonographer with us as a member of a team. I see. Yeah, and then Jill, you alluded to some situations where uh, EVIS might not be helpful, like if there's a big rock hard plaque. Any other scenarios that you commonly see where uh, you know that EVIS isn't going to be helpful in a case? Yeah, I think we've learned a lot. And we know that there are challenging places like, you know, the Hunter's Canal or the tibial perineal trunk. It could be hard on some patients. And um, I'm very forthcoming about where I think there's limitations of ultrasound. But by and large, EVIS is so valuable in the cath lab for access, for closure, for crossing lesions, for staying true lumen, for vessel sizing. I'm always trying to, you know, race against IVIS because I want to be better. <laughs> um, so I, I think um, I think there's just so much value. So there's not that many cases where we can't really use IVIS. We all know that rock pile in the Hunter's Canal where it's just a, a shadow, and I and we know that. But by and large, I mean, the case that you saw, Dr. Behetti, it was lovely. We came from, you know, pedal access and got through the uh, origin SFA occlusion pretty nicely using EVIS. But I do think there's a lot for people to understand, especially text to understand what happens in the cath lab. You have to understand wires, catheters. I know this case hopefully better than the physician performing because I did the ultrasound. Um, so I'm going to be trying to think two steps ahead of her. And I'm also looking for windows when I can check something when they're doing an exchange of a wire or catheter. Um, so it's a little bit of a dance. Would you agree, Dr. Saab, this, this dance between the vascular tech ultrasonographer and the operator? 
completely agree, which which actually I, I, and I always ask our ultrasonographers because I, I think it's it's an important thing that we physicians need to highlight the importance of your role. And, and we are privileged to witness the birth of this interventional ultrasonography field. And I got to ask you, you know, when you first started scanning in the ultrasound suite and then you started moving to the cath lab or the endo suite, how long would you say that it took you uh, to kind of change your mindset from, okay, I'm, I'm the ultrasonographer to like what you just pointed out. There is even nonverbal communication because you're so advanced in what you do and you have uh, this understanding with you and Dr. Constantino together. She does not need to give you verbal cues. You don't need to give her verbal cues. You're already going in your mind through a list of things that you're going to check. I'm checking the catheter in the short axis view. I'm checking the catheter in the long axis view. I'm checking that the, the wire did not leave the vessel. I'm checking that there's no hematoma. I know you're already doing that in your head, and you're not even verbalizing Dr. Constantino because she know, she depends on you to do that. But I'm going to ask you, how long did, do you think it took you to change your mindset from an ultrasonographer to an interventional ultrasonographer? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, so, you know, going back to the story of 2014, and I went with a, a vascular surgeon and we came back and made a commitment that we are going to make this work. And it's almost this, you know, investment and in, in, he was a champion for me. And it was not easy for me to step into a cath lab. Sometimes cath labs can be a little territorial and they're like, what? is ultrasound doing here <laughs> and why <laughs> what don't touch anything <laughs> that just so, it's it's, it's kind of like being like a third year medical student and you're like on your surgery rotation for the first time and you like rolling their eyes right. uh, at you yeah and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so i i <laughs> it was i mean it was a little difficult it took a good solid four months to gain the trust of the cath lab staff to really watch and learn and then actually weekly review of cases like tell me more about this wire this catheter this atherectomy device what are you thinking what was the outcome what should i be doing better uh so i would say a, a solid four months of work to really understand and get in the mind of this vascular surgeon or ir interventional cardiologist whoever that may be it's it's certainly an investment and the tech you know techs live in a usually a dark room where it's quiet we can take our time to adjust the machine Certainly not in the cath lab. Time is of the essence. And when you're doing balloon inflation, I am fixing all the you know settings on my machine because I know as soon as that balloon comes out, I'm putting the probe on because I want to know if there's a dissection. So, you know, I suppose four months is fair. <laughs> I'm always learning, though. But you know what's funny is is you said about uh, the acceptance of, of the staff to a new member, to a new role of the, the ultrasonographer being there. You know what's funny is nowadays, if we don't have an ultrasonographer in the room, it's like a big stop and block. Are you sure? We can't, we can't, we can't. Or they're not here. You know, Kaylin's not here or Abby's not here. So it's amazing to see the progression of the thought process uh, between, yeah, it's nice to have them to like, we can't do this without the interventional ultrasonographer. So, and that's why I feel strongly that this field is going to grow and you guys will be teaching lot of your peers down the road of how to be in that in that role, which I think is very important. I just invited Abby to join me for a discussion at SVU annual meeting to talk about this role of interventional ultrasonography. So I'm so excited to do that with Abby. Dr. Saab, you work at a multiple different centers and you you want to try and figure out from your population of sonographers who's going to be good to transition into this 
interventional role and who's not going to be good. Can you kind of walk me through how you find the right people for this? Why doesn't Jill take that one? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. This is going to sound a little bit extreme or uh, or a bit cheesy, but it's really a scouting mission. So I'm always looking for when we have candidates because I will say quite frankly, we've had we've had people that we invested time and effort in, and and ultimately it did not work out for them to be in the lab, not because they're not good or or they're they're not committed, but it's just you need a certain type of personality and and passion behind it. Again, I'm not suggesting they're not passionate. It's just that's not their role. And, and to be honest with you, Jill said something very important. Usually, the thought process and the training, and that's not a criticism. It's just it's just the way they're they're trained. You know, you're in a dark room. Uh, usually, have calm music on. You're dealing with a nervous patient. You know, everything is is very like methodical, organized, and relaxed. And then suddenly, you take all that and you turn it upside down. And they're supposed to be working under pressure. They're supposed to be, you know, interacting with different personalities. If there's something going wrong, uh, they need to be good under pressure. So all of those things are important. But to answer your question is, you know, you want to look for someone who is uh, willing to learn. And I say that as a generic answer, but, but really tell them that, okay, all of the knowledge and the foundation that you have as an ultrasonographer uh, now I need you to apply that in a different capacity, in a different way. And quite frankly, the book is not written yet. I'm, I'm hoping Jill and Abby and our interventional autosonographers will write this book and do this curriculum. And I'm not joking. This is going to be in the next five years. I think this is something that's going to be educated and trained to other autosonographers because there is no book. You know, uh, and I always give the example, you know, uh, the doctor is telling autosonographer, okay, show me the catheter. And the autosonographer will look at the physician and say, what do you mean? What's a catheter, right? That's always an example that I give because the physician needs to understand that our ultrasonographers do not understand the interventional universe that you're in. So it takes a certain type of personality. They're intrigued. They're very engaged. They're scientific. They want to grow. And they're intrigued by this idea of being a member of a team and they're willing to put themselves out there because not every physician is going to be, you know, warm and inviting. And some physicians, their idea of support might be putting you under more pressure. So I'm looking for, for those personality traits that will allow these, any he or she be able to act under pressure. And they're willing to accept criticism and they're willing to expand their horizon uh, and their role beyond what they, what they trained for at school. I'm not going to say that I'm always good at that because I certainly failed in, in multiple cases. And Jill, you know, you're very good. I, I would say we need good six to nine months uh, of training with interventional ultrasonographers to get them to the point where I feel that they are able to uh, provide adequate feedback and add to the therapy plan with the physician. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions Symphony Suite the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, 
visit philips.com slash symphony suite. Jill, you've interacted with uh, so many sonographers who maybe have been interested in doing what you're doing or just curious about it. Can you tell me a little more about uh, what you see as strong personality traits? Can you like look at somebody and say like, oh, this person's going to be awesome in the cath lab or, or look at them and be like, I think they should stick to the to scanning people in the dark. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe sometimes you can tell. Yeah, I, I agree with all of Dr. Fobb's points. I think where it becomes challenging for a lot of techs who have expressed interest that they want to be in the cath lab is actually we've got a problem with reimbursement that we don't get paid to be in the cath lab. And it's really the physician investment. Like, Dr. Saab, you've invested in your techs to stand there and be a part of the team, which is so valuable. And and half the time in Dr. Constantino's lab, I am wearing lead jumping in and out of the case because I got to go scan a patient to go, you know, keep the lab rolling because right now I'm the only tech. So she invests in me. I come in on my days off and I I, I won't miss a case if I can help it because I want to be there. Um, but she also is paying me in a non-reimbursable area to just to be part of the team. So I think that's an interesting thing to bring up is how do we make forward movement for the ultrasonographer to be, you know, reimbursed for the case? And, and, and you know, Jill, I mean, you bring a very good point and we don't want to make this discussion uh, outpatient versus inpatient, but one of the biggest challenges that I, I know you hear that, I hear that all the time, physicians coming and, um, and seeing what we do and really impressed by it and see the value in it. And, and by value, I don't mean the value in only success. I mean the value in safety for the patients. And that's something that trumps anything else. The level of safety that's afforded and provided by incorporating extravascular ultrasound in the lab is unprecedented. Uh, yes, we're talking about anecdotes, but in the next five years, I think the data is going to keep coming more and more and more about the safety provided by your presence in the lab. Having said that, you know, a lot of physicians that work in hospitals or institutions and uh, or employed by hospitals, the administration sometimes, not all of them, but the administration sometimes fails to see uh, that, yeah, you know, we're not getting reimbursed or paid for your time, your presence in the lab, and they cannot, in their mind, justify. Unfortunately, they're not looking beyond the, okay, you're an ultrasonographer, and you need to be reimbursed for your time spent in the lab. Versus people like Dr. Castillo, ourselves, in other labs, you know, Dr. Craig Walker's labs in, in Louisiana, they all have interventional ultrasonographers because they see the value in if we avoid one complication or if we're successful in one more case that otherwise we would not be successful in, and that's that trumps everything else. But how can we bring this to the payer and convince them that uh, this is important? I think that's ultimately going to end up requiring us showing data that shows that we're able to increase success rate and decrease complications, obviously translating to saving lives by doing this. So that's why we're in the early phases of this place. I, I wish I wish I'm optimistic about being reimbursed for this, but I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon unless we show more data. I mean, there's only a handful of centers that are doing this, like almost joining forces. And is that how we're going to make forward progress? Completely agree. And you know, it's, it's almost, uh, yes, it's going to be retrospective or, or prospective looking at centers that have interventional ultrasonography models 
compare their complication rates, quite frankly, I mean, let's just put it frankly, comparing complication rates in a center that has interventional ultrasonography in there versus centers that don't have interventional ultrasonography. Yes, the rate of complication, thankfully, thank God, is is low, but you need, you know, 500 patients or 1,000 patients in each group. And and look, is there a difference when you when you apply those things? Because I have tons of examples. You have tons of examples of, yeah, I saw a complication. I saw a hematoma. We caught it right away. We did something about it right away. But that remains anecdote unless we show data. Um, and I agree with you. You know, that's maybe the birth of an idea that we should combine these centers that have interventional ultrasonographers and and start collecting, you know, the rate of complications in these centers that have interventional ultrasonographers. Well, yeah, you mentioned your anecdotes. Um, fortunately, I got to see a, a really cool case where Jill uh, found a dissection and, you know, it was something that wasn't really visible on fluoro and then able to treat it. Could you share with the audience a couple other anecdotes of how EVIS has been helpful in your lab, maybe from recent cases? So you know, let me let me paint you a picture. This is a realistic picture and uh, just goes to the heart of like, who would you choose that as an interventional ultrasonographer in your lab? You know, you're doing an intervention and these are sick patient populations. They have frail vessels. They have calcified vessels, vessels that are prone to complications such as dissection or in extreme cases, perforations. And with perforations, you start having bleeding. And if you have bleeding in the thigh area, that's different than having bleeding within below the knee area where there's compartments. I keep saying that ultrasound is much more sensitive than angiography in identifying perforations. So uh, one of the examples is we were treating an anterior tibial artery. That's the anterior compartment below the knee. And we took an angiogram and the angiography was not really clear, even though it's digital subtraction angiography. And I was concerned about the perforation and our ultrasonographer, uh, her name is Caitlin. She said, I would like to scan the anterior compartment. And before you know it, she's placing the probe on there. She changed her settings and she said, Dr. Saab, I think there's a collection forming there. She was able to show me the bleed. And between the image to the, to the point of starting the bleed, it was about 90 seconds. So we initiated our protocol for a perforation, you know, balloon, external compression, the whole nine yards. In 15 minutes, we were able to control the bleeding. We identified that it was a branch perforation that was managed by conservative therapy. But here's, here's the challenging part. All of us in the room looking at the ultrasonographer who was scanning the anterior compartment of the patient. And I'm waiting as a physician. Now, I'm just, I want to, I want to paint the mental image for you. I'm waiting as a, as a physician, the staff is waiting as a physician. Do we still have continuous bleeding going on there or not? Because if we still have continuous bleeding going on, we need to do a certain things, including, um, you know, calling vascular surgery because maybe a compartment syndrome is being created, including placement of a covered stent, right? So there's a lot of pressure on this ultrasonographer to make an educated decision. And that's what I meant by you need to identify the person that's willing to accept that kind of, th ultimately it's a physician's decision, I understand, but but I depend on them to help me interpret the images that I'm looking at. Uh, so that's one of the examples. Nope, you know, the, the, the location looks fine. The compartment did not change in the size. Um, they already measured it. Uh, minimum wound diameter of the area, you can proceed, right? 
big difference versus I don't know what to do. I'm just going to send the patient to the hospital. They're in the hospital. They got an infection. Things got complicated. You, you know, so the consequences of knowing versus not knowing is completely different. This is a patient that ended up going home and, and it's fine versus, nope, you have a major bleeding going on here. You're not able to control it. You need to do something different and you need to do something different fast. That's a great example. Um, Jill, do you have any recent cases you'd like to share? Yeah, Dr. Saab, I so appreciate that that story because it, it happens and all eyes are on the ultrasonographer to make that decision based on what I'm seeing at this moment. And oftentimes, maybe not in, in an example like that, but you know, we see a dissection on IVIS and ultrasounds really sometimes the tiebreaker and, you know, the patient's wiggling and, you know, you have to be very quick in your decision making. And sometimes you have to pop around to many different places. I'm down at the foot, I'm down in the groin. I'm, the, you know, we have to be quick on our feet. And, um, you know, going back to the ultrasonographer, we work in precarious positions, as you saw, Director Behetti, like I'm navigating the C-arm and sometimes it can be very tricky, intense. And um, I think we we add so much value to that decision-making when there's a problem. And I, I couldn't agree more, Dr. Saab. Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a really an amazing thing to see if you get a chance to visit one of these centers and see how they do it. Let's talk a little bit about the specific case scenario, CTO crossing. Um, can you guys walk me through how you use EVIS and IVIS in that scenario? Jill, let's start with you. So currently I'm working with uh, Dr. Constantino um, and she she does use IVIS. Um, previously, when I work with um, vascular surgeons, we used more EVIS than IVIS. And so it's been really nice to see both, you know, in tandem and um, the value that each brings. Oftentimes, though, we'll cross CTOs uh, using ultrasound first, using EVIS, uh, especially, you know, if the, if the cap is amenable and we can just park, you know, the wire in the catheter right at the, the CTO cap and there's a method, and I'm, I'm sure Abby and Ben can agree to this, and, and you too, is the tech should not move. <laughs> and you get a lot of techs we're used to moving this probe all up and down the leg. And when you have, you know, the CTO cap, you hold steady and you are constantly communicating with the physician because all eyes are on that duplex ultrasound. That's what we have. Um, so we we use it a lot. And then you also know when to step away. Like, nope, use floral. Like, it's it's constantly this back and forth. And in really nice situations, it's it's nice to traverse the entire, you know, CTO with, with EVIS. But we go back and forth and then obviously confirm um, Truleman with, with IVIS. Uh, Dr. Saab, do you have any other examples? Yeah. So, so in 2018 or 19, we published a paper called the CTOP paper on uh, general endovascular therapy. And at the time, we looked at, uh, I believe, almost 150 CTOs. And at the time, we looked at the cap morphology or the way the CTO cap morphology looks uh, under angiography or even under ultrasound. And the point I want to make is, based on the CTO cap morphology, we've determined uh, how we're going to tackle the CTO in an integrate fashion, in a retrograde fashion. Do we need pedal access? Do we need column femoral artery access? But what was interesting about this trial, which we don't talk much about, is how much correlation was there between angiographic assessment of the CTO cap morphology and ultrasound assessment of the CTO cap morphology. And the C coefficient was about 0.8, which is really an excellent correlation in ultrasonography and angiography. And I mentioned that because a lot of physicians says, okay, well, I don't have a Jill in my lab. I don't have an Abby in my lab. 
and they feel it's all or nothing. Let's face it. When we started, we did not have an intellectual ultrasonographer in our lab. Like everybody else, we tried ourselves. We brought ultrasonographers in. We bribed them with coffee and Starbucks art. And, uh, you know, we begged and, you know, we had very intrigued and smart people like Jill that said, you know what, this is really cool. I'm going to come on my time off and do it. But at the end of the day, I said, but at least you can go to the, even the diagnostic lab and request that within your diagnostic evaluation of these patients, you can at least determine the cap morphology for the physician. And I know Jill does that without anybody asking her because she's already thinking in her head like, okay, this patient is going to go to the lab. They have a, a CTO in the superficial femoral artery. Let me show how the cap looks. Is it concave? Is it convex? Is it a pile of rock, calcium, like she said? Yeah, EVIS is not going to be helpful to visualize things through it, but guess what? This is a very valuable piece of information to the physician that I'm dealing with complex anatomy and I need to change my mentality and it's not going to be five minutes just in and out, right? So it really helps with the planning and organization and quite frankly, not wasting your time attempting things that you know is not going to work. One of the most frustrating things for me is when people say, well, I'm just going to try and if I don't, if I don't succeed in 10 minutes, uh, then I'm going to switch. Well, right now we have evidence. We have, we have data, we have prediction models that, you know what, when you see a certain type of anatomy, you need to do one, two, and three. This concept of let's attempt and see what happens is quite frankly, a futile and a dying methodology. You know, this is what I hated most during training is let's see and try. And you never know. I hated that very, very much. Now we actually, because of ultrasonography, we have a way for us to create a plan, follow it. And my own educated uh, experience, based on what we've been doing for the last 10 years or so, you're more than 80% of the time you're, you're, you're correct in, in the way you plan things based on the, the information that's afforded to you by, by ultrasonography. Jill? Yeah. I mean, that case that you saw, Abby, it was a flush SFA occlusion and nice concave cap from the foot. And it was lovely, you know, and I think the success is higher. It's easier on the patient. And um, as you've said before, it's the safety. I mean, gosh, just like you, we use ultrasound for closure of um, the pedal access site. It's really, really lovely. So I think, um, well, I'm, I'm also curious, Dr. Saab, about when you cross, like, tell me about your algorithm when you're introducing IVIS. Right. So, so uh, Abby, if you remember, that's why I said, you know, hey, let's change the title from uh, EVIS versus IVIS to EVIS to IVIS, a continuous spectrum. And I really, that's, that's how I think of it. I think of the two imaging modalities as complementary to each other. And um, I think of EVIS as a modality that's going to help me guide my catheters and wires, uh, especially in chronic total occlusions. I think of EVIS as a modality that increased my safety in terms of obtaining access and in terms of securing that when I finish the case and uh, use a closure device or even manual pressure, I'm confident that uh, we're not leaving the patient to, in a situation that they can be bleeding and we don't even know about it. Uh, I'm using EVAS to look at possible complications that I'm worried about during the, the procedure. All of those things cannot be achieved by IVAS. Let's highlight how they're different from each other. But fast forward to, yes, you cross the lesion uh, and you, you traverse this complicated anatomy, even if it was not a chronic total occlusion, even if it's just a patent vessel, 
now the role of IBIS is very important. I don't think it's as relevant for people like Jill and us in terms of sizing of a vessel because Evas was doing a pretty good job in terms of being able to size these vessels and understand them. But what IBIS was able to do is allow us to look at, uh, in a more granular way, the composition of a plaque that we're treating. You know, the IBIS that we use in our labs is the Philips. Uh, there's, there's two types of IBISs. There's the Boston Scientific uh, Intravascular Ultrasound, and there's the Philips Ultrasound. The Boston Scientific Ultrasound is a higher frequency, and it's a mechanical intravascular ultrasound system, 40 to 60 megahertz, and he has a mechanical component, meaning that it's rotational. And that comes with its own sets of challenges uh, because you have a rotating component, uh, not good or bad, it's just... As an operator, you need to be mindful of these complications and artifacts that's related to it. And then you have a multi-phase array uh, intravascular ultrasound, 20 to 40 megahertz, which is the Philips ultrasound system. There's other systems out there, but those are the two most common intravascular ultrasound systems. And uh, the Philips system tends to be a little bit more user-friendly, even if you use uh, some of their latest consoles, their touchscreen, their LCD, your there's a lot of tools that are at, literally at at the table side where the physician can do all sort of analysis while they're there. And, and it takes less than 60 seconds to connect it and perform the analysis. So I think it's very important to be able to determine uh, the plaque morphology when you're working on it. But something that we don't talk a lot about is how much disease is being missed by angiography that you're able to identify by intravascular ultrasound. That's something that uh, it's not a lot of people are talking about. I think it's going to be very important. I think it's it needs to be a big part of what we do for a lot of patients. So right now, you know, everybody somehow, including myself, before IBIS, we tend to think like, okay, you have a lesion in the proximal SFA and then a lesion in the mid popliteal and maybe a lesion in the distal tibials. But when you perform ultrasound, you see this, this systematic disease, this deadly disease, PAD and CLI, affecting the whole vasculature to varying degrees. And that really changes your, your way of thinking in terms of what you're going to treat. So biogeography, you would not, this is my own, my own assessment. I think angiography underestimates the true nature of a disease by anywhere from 50 to 70%. Uh, this is my own experience. It's not, it's not published data, but because I, I compare myself to myself before we incorporated intervascular ultrasound in our practice, and you notice a big difference. What you saw in geography that looks pretty normal, you do uh, intervascular ultrasound and you're like, how, I would have missed this. I wouldn't have been able to see. So that's been a critique I've heard, you know, from people about using IVIS for every case is that uh, IVIS will uh, show you things that aren't there on, on your angiogram. Um, and I guess my question is, how do you know that treating the lesions that you might see on IVIS that aren't maybe clinically significant on the angiogram, how do you know that the outcomes are going to be better? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. And, and it's mind-boggling to me that when you challenge, and not challenge in a, in a negative way, when you ask the person who's asking this question, do you think what you're seeing is not real? The answer is, no, it's real. Do you think that angiography is providing you with a better image than intravascular ultrasound? 
or intravascular ultrasound is providing you with a better image? They say, no, intravascular ultrasound is providing us with a better image. So this analogy is, is putting the carriage uh, before the horse. You know, everybody wants the data and wants the evidence behind doing something, but we cannot have data unless we, we collect it, unless we attempt the strategy. I will say as a cardiologist, and, and um, I hope this will be my only cardiology analogy, and I apologize, but we have tons of data. I would say, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say more than 100 trial, looking at intravascular guided percutaneous coronary intervention versus non-IVIS guided interventions, and the difference is crystal clear. And believe it or not, we have data in the peripheral space that shows that outcomes, hard endpoints, hard clinical point outcomes in patients with critical limb ischemia. So I'm talking about amputation-free survival. I'm talking about treatment for patients. Patients who received intravascular ultrasound assessment with critical limb ischemia had better outcomes than patients that, who did not receive intravascular ultrasound uh, during their evaluation of critical limb ischemia. And Dr. Sosemski, his work is phenomenal in that space. There's a lot of the data that's coming out and looking exactly at that. So I think the camp that's arguing that, well, how do you know that this is beneficial? Um, yes, I agree that it's not cannot be only logic and the opinions of people like myself. We need to have hard data. But right now, I think it's it's the onus is on them to say, to prove why this technology is not working. Very well put. Yeah. I trained in a, a program that didn't use that much intravascular ultrasound, especially on the arterial side. And I've transitioned to using it for uh, all my cases. And I, I just like you feel like um, I see things that I wouldn't have seen on the angio. So, I mean, Abby, the, the, I mean, let me ask you this: Would you, uh, would you even comprehend performing stenting in a May Turner syndrome without the use of intravascular ultrasound? I mean, really, theaters on on the point of like crying if you don't if you don't use it. I mean, would you agree? I mean, you just, like, who would who would not use intravascular ultrasound right now for May Turner? I've taken the IVIS machine like in my car to hospitals to do like May Thurner cases because I don't I know they don't have it there. <laughs> like that's how strongly I feel about it. So I we're on the same page. Jill, uh, how about you? What do you think about about using IVIS for almost every case for the arterial side? Yeah, I mean I I think I'm in an environment now where I see it used throughout all the cases, and it, it certainly makes sense. I I feel like though ultrasound IVIS can be such a nice complement to IVIS, especially it drives Dr. Montero Baker crazy when, you know, we talk about limiting dissections and put the ultrasound probe up there and look and see if it's flow limiting. Do we have a waveform change or is it non-flow limiting? I think there's a lot of valuable information that we can get from IVIS um, when we see a dissection on IVIS. So I think they're very complementary. Well, awesome. Um, coming from like a more community-based practice, um, if I wanted to start doing IVIS in my lab, per se, and maybe I've identified a sonographer who I think would be a good fit. Um, what are my next steps to to get that person into my lab? Jill, I'm going to I'm going to turn this one to you first. <laughs> well, I had the the privilege of having uh, Dr. Behetti's tech in our lab, and um, she seems 
excellent and very passionate and excited to be there. Um, but we have to also recognize a lot of these techs have never even seen a wire or catheter. And I spent time with with both of the techs that were there and said, feel it, look at it, um, imagine it. And so I think to go down that road, it's an investment of your time into your texts to bring them into cases to talk through like what is in your mind. And, um, you know, I'm just 300 miles south. So I'd, I'd love to have her come down again. But, you know, it's it's that investment of time. And yeah, just having them around for kind of everything you do, having them see cases, seeing if they're a good fit. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, even if you're not going to have an an interventional ultrasonographer in your cath lab, every vascular technologist should step foot in a cath lab. And, and they should see the case that they did the ultrasound on because we have misses and we, this is how we learn. Every, every tech should have the experience of seeing a case that they scanned and putting all of these pieces together. And, and that probably also goes for endoterectomy versus TCAR, open bypasses versus endo. I mean, you, we have to have this higher level of thinking in all of these vascular beds to do better in the outpatient or inpatient, you know, regular ultrasound scanning. And that helps with reporting and, and patient outcomes, I believe. One thing I would like to mention in bringing an ultrasonographer into your lab, the physician that's doing this have to really accept responsibility for that person. And what do I mean by that? Uh, they have to accept that they are mentoring that ultrasonographer. And that includes empowering them to uh, be verbal. So as a physician or as a team, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I don't want to make it like a speech, but, but to be honest with you, unless you as a physician empower that person that's that's coming to an environment that's completely different than the, the original environment and uh, basically putting the onus on them to be an important member of this team and affecting the livelihood of a team and most importantly affecting the livelihood of a patient because if they make a mistake or there is an issue or something or things don't end up being the right way that is a lot of emotional toll on those people and it, it the physician needs to be in a mentorship position empowering those individuals to be like, you know, you're not in this alone. Uh, yes, this is a new field, but I trust you. Uh, I am with you. We're going to do this together. And if a mistake happens and mistakes do happen, uh, unintentional, obviously, you know, they'll feel terrible. They'll feel bad. They'll say, I'm not going to step a foot in the lab again, but you know what? That's a sign of a good person. That's a sign of a person that you want to be a member of your team. Because if they didn't care at the end of the day, you don't want them to be in that in that team. I mean, you know, as, as physicians, we all have good days and bad days. And that's just the way it is. Uh, Jill, you know the same thing. We all have good days and bad days. You know, you want to go home every day with 100% success. But the reality is we, we don't have that every day. And, you know, we can't, we can't change that. We have, that's part of who we are as healthcare providers. But unless the physician accepts the responsibility as a health, as a mentor for, for this individual that they're bringing into a team, they're not going to be successful. It's, you have to do your part in empowering these individuals. Well put. Yeah. We're kind of wrapping up on our hour here. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, different devices for IVIS. Jill, would you like to speak quickly about different options you have for IVIS? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, you know, to empower your techs 
um, or to bring them into the cath lab suite, we've got to have updated ultrasound systems. A lot of cath labs, you know, some just have a, a sonosite that we use for access. And I, I know Dr. Saab and you know, Dr. Constantino and Dr. Montero Baker, we have high end, whether it be Philips or Siemens or whatever system it is, but um, we have to have good ultrasound to do these high end um, procedures. And so arm them with the proper equipment and probes that they need for success. Yeah. Um, in most cases, just having uh, at least one linear probe will get you most of what you can see, right? Um, any tips and tricks on what to look for when you're investing in a, a high end system? Yeah, I mean, I think a linear probe and certainly a, a high frequency, we use a hockey stick probe for pedal access. Perfect. Is there anything else that you'd like the audience to know about how you use uh, Evis and Ivis in your lab every day to take care of patients? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. Um, we have three centers uh, between Michigan and actually Las Vegas. Don't ask me why Las Vegas, but uh, we, we, we have a center in Las Vegas. So, And one of the things that we initiated actually last year was an ultrasound guided access protocol. And for, for people that hear about it is like, hmm, I mean, yeah, everybody uses ultrasound for access or, or they think they do. But we actually made it a policy that we shared now all of our centers. And what the ultrasonographers are expected to do is regardless of the access, mostly the common femoral artery, anti-grade or retrograde, we actually will document the vessel size, pulsatility, uh, we will document compressibility of the vessel. All of those images are actually part of the intervention. And after we obtain access with a needle and wire, we actually will document the compressibility of the vessel with the needle and the wire through it. And that image gets saved into the system. And what we're trying to show here is A, the access point within the vessel. So if you have a hematoma, you're not guessing anymore. And B, that we're actually able to compress this vessel at the end of a procedure, even if you're not using closure device. And then at the end of the procedure, if you use a closure device, regardless of a closure device, uh, we actually use ultrasound to guide closure, like Jill said. So, you know, per close or angioseal, those are intravascular devices. Uh, we, even the Minx device, it's an extravascular device. But after we close the uh, artery anatomy site within the common femoral artery, then the ultrasonographer, the interventional ultrasonographer will document hemostasis under ultrasound. And again, that's part of the system. So we know that the patient is leaving the angio suite with hemostasis. That's for the common femoral artery. For pedal access, we just published uh, our case series about 500 patients with pedal access. We found that the rate of closure of tibial vessels related to ultrasound-guided access at 30 days is about 6.9%. Since that, we've initiated uh, ultrasound-guided closure of pedal access, meaning using a high-frequency probe like the hockey stick probe, we will apply pressure to the access point and allow patent hemostasis. And, and I can't do it. Only people like Jill, Jill and Abby and Kaylin, they can do it. They can modulate the pressure at the access site and allow patent hemostasis for three to five minutes usually. And that's for us. We don't want to see closures within the access site related to our access. So the, the point I'm trying to make here that we have protocols solely revolving around ultrasound gate access. The, the goal is always to decrease the rate of complications in these patients. And it doesn't impact your workflow. You know, all of us are willing to invest 10, 15 minutes extra 
if it translates to better safety for the patient. And, and I think this is going to be the future in a lot of the centers around the country. I love it, Dr. Saab. <laughs> I, you know, I, I love it so much because <laughs> I, I think there's just so much uh, value in extravascular ultrasound and ultrasound in the cath lab suites. We just have to find a way to collaborate and it should be a higher standard in bringing ultrasound as a, a standard of care for patient safety in the cath lab. So I could listen to you all day. <laughs> I think we're all doing, you know, very similar work and it, it's outstanding. May I propose actually, uh, and this is just an idea for the Backtable team, I would love to listen to Jill, Abby, Kaylin, uh, Abby and Kaylin are ultrasonographers with us here, and actually have an hour uh, just talking to them about what did it take for them to, to move from being an ultrasonographer to an interventional ultrasonographer. Honestly, I think a lot of physicians will love that, but I think ultrasonographers will love that. Just again, I'm just throwing an idea out there. Uh, I would love for you guys to have an hour doing that. I think we can make that happen, right? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, seriously, don't you think so? Like so many physicians, like, how did you do it? How did you do it? How can I train my ultrasonographer? How many times do you have ultrasonographers coming to you? I'm like, okay, my, my doctor is mad at me. Tell me what to do. I don't, I don't know how to do it. I mean, people want to know there is so much hunger to, to, to that. And who's better than you guys to talk about these nuances? I mean, Jill, you said something like, you know, nonchalant. Uh, five minutes ago, but you know how long how long does it take me to teach ultrasonographers to do that? She said, uh, as an ultrasonographer, you got to learn not to jump up and down. You know, she said it like in passing. You know, that's a critical point, number one, for the physician to tell the ultrasonographers, stop the rocking motion, because that's how they're trained. The ultrasonographers, that's how they're trained. They have to have a rocking motion. That's the proper way of doing it. And then it it, it took me six months when we first started doing this to say, why are you moving back and forth? And they're like, what do you mean? That's the way we're trained, right? So it's it's pearls like this that only these guys know how to relate to others. I would I would love to hear like a talk like this, just teaching how ultrasonographers how to do it. All right. Yeah. Put it on the docket. I think we can make that happen. Well, uh, Jill and Fadi, thank you so much for being on the program today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Behetti. And thank you, Dr. Sub. Thank you, ladies. It was a pleasure being on, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to participate with such a great uh, company. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.